From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Now, this is not just any episode. We're going to call this our, well, I guess it's our season finale of the Stuck at Home series. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today we are wrapping things up with the holiday spirit. We're virtually sitting down with prolific writer, director, and producer Chris Columbus to talk about his most recent endeavor, The Christmas Chronicles 2. Chris is also the screenwriter behind Gremlins, The Goonies, and Christmas with the Cranks, the director behind Home Alone 1 and 2, Mrs. Doubtfire, Stepmom, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and the producer behind The Lighthouse, Tallulah, The Witch, Night at the Museum, and so much more. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, this is fun. Thank you. How is the holiday season going for you? I'm sure it's going for me the same as for everyone else. I mean, it's a little surreal. You know, I tried to go out and do some Christmas shopping yesterday, and it was pretty depressing, I have to say. You know, I don't want to start off on that note, but the feeling of Christmas really exists within your home this year. It's less about material things, and it's more about safety and health and being around your family. And watching really great Christmas movies. You know, I've done a lot of holiday-themed movies, but I don't watch that many of them. What we did with Chronicles is we took it so incredibly seriously, and I'm sure we'll get into that, that some of the lighter, fluffier stuff doesn't appeal to me as much. Interesting. I want to get into that later, but I want to start kind of at the beginning and make our way there. When is it that you knew you were going to be a filmmaker? My grandparents were coal miners, and my parents were both factory workers, so the concept of being in the film business was impossible. I mean, there was no one in my family who ever even attempted something like that. The biggest sort of star in our family was a guy named Augie Donatelli, who was a Major League Baseball umpire. So he, like, achieved something of such greatness that I thought, well, that's the epitome, you know. He's got a great name, too. He was a great umpire. But the idea of becoming a filmmaker didn't really occur to me because I was going to be a comic book artist. That's what I wanted to do. And I would spend eight hours a day drawing comics. And I wanted to move to New York, out of Ohio, and work for Marvel Comics. That was it. I was deeply into Marvel Comics before they were really Marvel. So I picked up an issue of Time Magazine, and in it was an article about film schools, something I also didn't know about. They focused on UCLA, USC, and NYU. And I thought, wow, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm basically storyboarding movies every day. But I love working with people. I love being around a lot of people. And being in a room for eight hours a day working for Marvel Comics suddenly didn't seem so appealing. And I finally understood what a director was based on this Time Magazine article. So I started making Super 8 films and at one point said to my parents when I was a junior in high school, I want to go to NYU because NYU was close enough to Ohio that if I failed miserably, I could come (laughs) back home. Now, now my only option in life was either to be some sort of illustrator or painter or work in one of the two factories that my parents worked in. One was an aluminum factory and a car factory. So when I got to NYU, I was determined not to screw up. I knew that this is my only shot. So I just worked as hard as I could, you know, and I just really started writing, started making student films. In my sophomore year, I wrote a script and my teacher, a guy named Jesse Cornblue, said he liked the script enough. And he was like, if you finish that, I'll show it to my agent. So that summer, when I had a summer job at the aluminum factory, I asked to be on the night shift 
on the night shift, you didn't have to do that much work and you could go off and hide. The foreman was always sleeping in his office and I finished the screenplay over three months. You're like hiding in a corner writing by hand? I'm hiding between two giant aluminum coils with a little light that I brought and I would just write by hand and then before I went to work, the next day I'd type up what I'd written. So that script got me my first agent and it was actually optioned my junior year of college. And it was called Jocks. It was about my experiences in Catholic school and playing high school football. It was never made, but it sort of opened up the world for me. And that's when I really started writing screenplays because my agent said to me, the only way you're ever going to get to direct is to write a couple of screenplays that not only get made, but maybe one or two of them are successful. And then they'll let you direct. When you have a script optioned and you're still in school, did you go through that phase of like, oh God, do I leave school now because I've made it? and I'm successful? Or were you smart enough to not even be tempted? I thought about that. My filmmaking teacher said, that's great that you sold this screenplay, but you should make a film. So I forgot screenwriting for a year and I made my student film. And this was a guy named Haig Mnugin who also taught Brian De Palma and Marty Scorsese. I mean, Haig is the guy at the end of Raging Bull who Scorsese dedicates the movie to. So Haig was instrumental in making me do that. And that was really helpful because I wasn't infected by this dream of moving to Hollywood. And I never wanted to go to Hollywood. I mean, for me, it was, I'm going to be in New York for the rest of my life making movies. That's what I initially thought. But I know you've said it was pure luck that Spielberg saw the script for Gremlins and that's what brought you out to Hollywood. Yeah. I remember a few years ago when Paul Newman was alive, I was going to do a movie with him. And he unfortunately passed away. But he said to me, you know, kid, the only way you make it in this business is a combination of 50% talent, and 50% luck. 50 producers passed on Gremlins and Spielberg was leaving his office. He passed his assistant's desk and there was a pile of scripts and Gremlins was on top and he liked the title. So he took it home for the weekend. And that's how Spielberg made Gremlins, really. He called you personally, didn't he? He called me at my loft. Now, remember, in the early 80s, a loft in New York City was not what a loft in New York City <laughs> is today. We were paying $128 a month in rent. And we had mice on the floor. And it was, a, it was a disastrous place. But it was fun for us. We were kids. We didn't know any better. And I got a call. My college roommate, Michael Barnathan, answered the phone. And he said, there's a guy on who says he's Steven Spielberg. And I said, it's not impossible. I'd already forgotten. I didn't know my agent, by the way, sent the script to Spielberg because there were 50 producers. So at first, I didn't believe him when I heard the voice. Hi, Chris, Steven Spielberg. I was like, it's really Steven Spielberg. And the following week, they flew me out to Hollywood to meet with Steven and talk about the script. Could you hear him after you realized he was Steven Spielberg or was it just all blood rushing to your head? There was a lot of blood rushing to my head, but there was also that feeling of, oh, my God, this is Steven Spielberg. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And then you guys collaborated on your next three screenplays. What an incredible start to a career. What did you take from that? It was kind of graduate school in filmmaking. I got married right before Gremlins. So my wife and I moved out to Hollywood and we were like, let's give it a shot. So I had an office in Amblin at the time, which there were only four or five of us at Amblin. Robert Zemeckis, Kathleen Kennedy, John Williams and Steven and myself. So I had an office next to John Williams and then next to John Williams was Steven Spielberg. So when we were writing Goonies, I would literally write three pages. And then Steven said, you have carte blanche to come into my office. It doesn't matter who I'm meeting with. I'll look at the pages. I'll give you some notes and you go back. So it was like, I'd run down to his office. He'd be sitting there with like Warren Beatty or (laughs) Richard Dreyfuss. And I was tongue tied. I'm a kid, 23 years old or 24. I don't remember. He would make some notes and I'd go back to the office, type them up, bring them back down. And that's basically how Goonies was written. What's his style of giving notes? His style of giving notes is just making physical notes on the script and discussing them with me as he's doing it. The great thing about Steven is if I didn't agree with it, he wasn't adamant about me doing it. 
for him to be that generous with me at that age was just an amazing thing. And I learned more because of it. There was a time when I did a draft, the first draft of the third Indiana Jones movie. And at that point, I'd moved back to New York because my wife and I were like, we got to get out of Hollywood. we got to get back to Manhattan. <laughs> so I went back to New York and Stephen called and said, do you want to do the third Indiana Jones movie? And I said, yeah, I'd love that. So I went into a hotel room with Stephen and George Lucas. Now, the fact that George Lucas was there made it really intimidating for me. You know, Stephen and I had had this working relationship. I was still in awe of Stephen, but the two of them was a tremendous amount of pressure. So they basically dictated the Indiana Jones script. And I wrote down everything they said, from screen direction to dialogue. And then after about 10 days of doing that, I went back to physically type the script and I didn't have the courage to change anything at that point. So that was a different experience because I thought, Stephen and I had a close working relationship. We could talk about the changes, but in this situation, it's Lucas and Spielberg. So I have to do exactly what they said. And so I did. And I wrote the script and I sent it to them and I basically got fired. And I tell that story to NYU students all the time when I go back because it's like a story about not trusting your instincts and not listening to what's going on in your own head and heart. And I said, if you don't do that and you don't personalize it and you don't change, even if you're collaborating with someone, you will fail. And that was a big blow to me at that point. Has that been a lesson that you've had to remind yourself of or after that point, you always stayed true to what you wanted to tell in each story? You have to remind yourself of that. I had to, again, remind myself of that when I was doing Home Alone with John Hughes, because John wrote the script. And again, he was John Hughes. He'd already done a tremendous amount of great movies. I was in awe of John, but I had learned that lesson. So I wasn't going to let it happen again, because I had just come off of a really bad experience on a movie that I directed that was critical and commercial flop. So my agent said, it's going to be tough for you to get another job. But John gave me that job, so Home Alone, I knew had to be great, but I knew I had to follow my instincts. I was able to do that because John came to the set the first day and then never came back. So I basically got to make the film I wanted. And then when he saw the film, he loved it and he was very supportive. So there was never any creative tension like that with John. It was just, um, it was a great working relationship. Yeah. And I mean, what another heavy hitter to connect with early in your career. Yeah. How did that originally come about? How did you guys find each other? Well... At the time, my wife and I were taking a long vacation, probably four or five weeks, staying with her parents in Chicago. And John was in Chicago, and we had the same agent. So John heard I was in Chicago and sent me, which is pretty notorious at this time, the script for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And Chevy Chase and I just did not get along. It really was a terrible, just a terrible relationship. And again, I could have stuck it out and made the film because I had no other choice. Somebody gave me a film to do, and I loved this. I thought the script was very funny, and it was Christmas-themed. But I had to call John and say, I can't do it with this guy. And he goes, well, I appreciate you telling me that. And I thought that was it. Because I thought John was going to say to himself, this guy dropped the ball. I gave him a job, and he quit. And then two weeks later, he sent me the script for Home Alone. That's belief in someone, you know. What was the process for you deciding that you were going to, you know, stick to your guns and not work with someone if you knew it wasn't going to work? There were just three or four really unpleasant meetings. I was just treated horribly by Chevy. So I just felt I'm going to make a bad film or he will take over and I can't let that happen. So it was an easy decision once you realized that. No, no, because I had to make the call. So that was terrifying. So, uh, but it was an easy decision, particularly after I'd done it. I felt relieved. It's like that moment where you take a stand and then you hang up the phone and you feel great for maybe 20 seconds and then you realize, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so then what was the feeling when the Home Alone script came in? He sent two scripts. One script was called Reach the Rock, which I think was made, directed by his at one time assistant. And then I read Home Alone and I thought, well, I was also terrified because I knew if I didn't like the script, I wasn't going to make the movie either. You know, even though I was in this terrible situation career-wise, but when I read Home Alone, it was Home Alone, you know, and I knew what I could bring to it. And I knew that I could make a really strong film out of this material. Had you worked with stunts before? No, I'd never worked with stunts before. <laughs> there were a couple of stunts, I think, in Adventures in Babysitting, but nothing at this level of, you know. What was that learning experience like? You know, we'd rehearse the stunts, so I'd see them. But these were the days before stuntmen wore wires. You could remove via CGI. So they were real. The stunts were real. And when we would shoot the stunts, it was terrifying because what would happen is these guys were really doing it. And there were no pads. There were pads on their bodies, but they were falling on cement. They were falling down the stairs. So we'd shoot the stunt and it was total silence from the crew and myself. And I'd say, cut. And the stuntmen were just lying there all the time. I guess that's what they're taught. And I'd walk up to them and I'd say, are you guys okay? They'd brush themselves off and they'd say, oh yeah, we're fine. Let's do another one. And then we'd go back to the monitor and rewatch what we shot. And then it was hysterically funny. But we had to know that the stuntmen were alive before we could enjoy the fact. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So you've classically worked with so many amazing child actors. What is it like working with children rather than working with adults? It depends on their level of experience in one sense. In one sense, you don't want them to have too much experience. That's certainly what I didn't want with Home Alone, because a lot of these Hollywood kids, and you see it time and time and time again in certain films, there's a phone-in quality to the performance. So there's something great about getting a kid like Macaulay, who's not that experienced, or getting the kids on the Potter set who were not that experienced. For Home Alone, it was acting school. And for Harry Potter, it was acting school. I mean, you'll notice in Home Alone, if you look at the film carefully, and it was designed this way, the camera does not linger long on Macaulay Culkin. We cut a lot quicker than I normally would, which probably makes up some of the charm of the movie. But at the same time, it was me off camera feeding him a line and he would say it. And then I would feed him another line and he would say it. We do that about 20 times for each line. There were times when I didn't have to do it with him because instinctually he was a brilliant comedic actor at that age. But at the same time, you know, you're dealing with kids' energy. So it's like a kind of a sporting event. You have to give them that much energy. Same thing on the Potter set. We had four cameras on these kids at all times because the first three weeks, they were just happy to be in the Harry Potter world. They would look into the camera after they said their line. They would <laughs> look at their costumes. So again, that's a movie with many cuts in it. And then as we got to Chamber of Secrets, the kids were becoming really good actors. So I was finally able to do an entire dolly shot with the three kids walking and talking. And by the time we got into Azkaban, they were terrific actors. So I was very happy about our collective time and acting school on those films. How do you direct kids to work with CGI when they're inexperienced? 
if you're not feeding them lines, you have to be that creature off camera. <laughs> I almost gave myself a heart attack directing the basilisk scene with Dan Radcliffe because I'm basically off camera performing what I want him to do. So when he's fighting with a sword, I'm behind the scenes doing the exact same thing. Wow. Every day is exhausting. You get home and it's like you went 15 rounds with Rocky Graziano. So you're exhausted. And that's why I didn't do the third movie because we did the first two back to back. Each one was 120 days, so that's... Hell of a shoot, yeah. <laughs> and I was just the basket case, so I couldn't really do it. Did it feel magical while you were doing it, though? Or was it very much like, we're making a movie and, God, we just have to get through it? There were certain days that felt extremely magical because that was back in the day when you shot film and you had dailies. So you didn't know what your film was going to look like. You just had a really lousy monitors back then and you kind of saw what it was going to look like, but it wasn't on a gigantic movie screen. So after we'd shoot every day, we'd go into a theater and watch what we shot. When we shot the first great hall scene, when the kids walk in and all the candles are floating, which were practical, we all applauded. They were practical for two shots. The flames burnt the wire that was holding them. So we got <laughs> it pretty quickly. But that was a magical moment. So when we'd see dailies, certain moments seemed extraordinarily magical. But there was a lot of just getting through the day, particularly in dialogue sequences. I want to make sure we talk about Christmas Chronicles. You've done a lot of films that take place at Christmas. Christmas with the Cranks and Harry Potter. People consider a Christmas movie sometimes because there's Christmas in it. And Stepmom and Gremlins and Home Alone. Since you said you don't tend to watch Christmas movies, what is it that keeps drawing you back to movies that happen at Christmas? Well, there are two thematic elements that I'm drawn to. One is Christmas, obviously. And Christmas to me is something that's a complex stew of feelings, you know, that people have. Some people are extraordinarily happy. Other people are really depressed and sad and anxious. And that's happening a lot this year. But even in normal times, that was always part of what was going on in the Christmas season. So for me to set a film or a story under those circumstances where everyone's sort of wearing their heart on their sleeve and emotions are at a higher level than they normally would be, it's an exciting time. And visually, it's sometimes you get to cheat a little bit by making things a little warmer and a little more inviting. Lighting helps. And so it's something that I'm always drawn to, which is a constant theme in the films as well, is when I first saw The Godfather Part Two, there's a scene where Michael Corleone says to his mother, can a man truly lose his family? And I really was moved by that. Mrs. Doubtfire. It's a man trying to get back to his family. Kevin loses his family in Home Alone. Harry Potter's born without a mother and a father living with his horrible aunt and uncle. Even stepmom is about welcoming a new family and losing your old family. Christmas Chronicles is about the same thing. So I'm drawn to those things. You put your own family in the movies that you do, don't you? I do, because my daughter, Violet, plays the checkout woman in 1990 at the uh, Logan Airport. They're very expensive home movies, I guess. <laughs> you get to see your kids grow over the years. My daughter, Eleanor, who's running our independent film company with me, Maiden Voyage, was the baby sitting on my mother-in-law's lap in the airplane in Home Alone. Eleanor also played Susan Bones in the first two Harry Potter films. She didn't utter a line because we had a strict rule back then that everyone had to be British. But Eleanor's in a lot of the movie and she still gets fan mail. It's come full circle. So Christmas Chronicles 2, you produced the first one. What made you decide to write and direct the second one? The best three actors I've ever worked with were John Candy, Robin Williams, and Kurt Russell. So when Kurt and I started Christmas Chronicles 1 and I was producing, we just hit it off. We had the same sensibility about movie making and we shared a similar energy. When we finished one and it turned out well and people seemed to like the movie and Netflix wanted to do a second one, I said to Kurt, I really want to direct you. You know, I want us to work together. 
And Kurt uses the term in cahoots a lot. And what he means by that is he goes, I want to be in cahoots with you. He makes you feel incredibly equal. And I make him feel incredibly equal. And that's kind of the relationship I wanted with Chevy Chase, which was not like that. I was down here. Chevy was way up here. But Kurt and I were partners on this thing. So we um, spent about four months here in Santa Monica working on the script together. And then every night before we'd shoot, we'd rewrite the scene. I'd go to his trailer. We'd rewrite the scene for the next day. And it was just a great working relationship because I feel like it can say anything to him. I've been in a lot of arguments with Kurt and, you know, we're right at each other. You know, we are just fighting for what we believe in, but we're never angry with each other. We just want to do the best work possible. What were some of the disagreements you had about Christmas Chronicles too? Just sometimes line readings, blocking lines that he felt he wouldn't say as Santa Claus. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's so committed to this character that he wrote nearly 200 pages, maybe more, on the background mythology of Santa Claus. Kurt went into this role as a method actor, and he will tell anybody that. And that kind of commitment to a role like Santa Claus, which a lot of people still perceive as silly or, for lack of a better word, the British word twee. You know, there haven't been a lot of really great performances as Santa Claus. I guess Edmund Gwen back in Miracle on 34th Street, a couple other ones that I don't remember right now, but Kurt gave it his all. So when I saw that kind of passion for a role, I thought to myself, nobody's ever taken this particular role this seriously. And I felt the same way. And so together we kind of geek out on Christmas. We love it. And this was the first time I've done a Christmas film. It's always been a background, but this movie, we dig into the mythology of Santa Claus and where he came from and how it all began. And that's what I loved about the Christmas Chronicles too, is that you get a chance to see a bit of the origin story of Santa Claus. And like the joy of Santa's city or what did they want to rename it? Mrs. Claus's? Mrs. Claus's Village. Yes. It was an interesting discussion I had with Goldie early on and Kurt. Kurt was pushing for me to create a Mrs. Claus that was a little more like Goldie and maybe Private Benjamin, a little more comedic. And then we agreed on it finally when we started shooting. And Goldie was a big part of this discussion, too. I was interested in working with Goldie, the strong actress, and I wanted to create a Mrs. Claus that was strong and formidable and someone who designed the village someone who was an equal to Santa. These two were a team, you know, and the fact that she designed the village is just something that, again, goes back to her backstory, which maybe we'll examine in another movie or not. Having three daughters myself, I really wanted to create a strong, almost pioneer woman in Mrs. Santa Claus. Even when she's introduced in the first movie, she's not bringing him his slippers. She's just been out chopping wood. You know, she's tough. And you give her real moments of like dramatic turn and, you know, you see her eyes well when she talks about missing children and there they are. There's that kind of depth in some of the writing and her performances. Some of the best writing goes uncredited to Kurt, you know, and nobody really knows when they see the movie why she's so melancholy about children. But there's a story there. There's a story that Kurt and I wrote that is a backstory for her, which again fuels an actor's performance. And at the end of the movie, when Jack says to Mrs. Claus, I'll never forget you, Mrs. Claus. Kurt wrote what I consider the best line in the movie. She says, oh, you will from time to time, and that's how it should be. It was a great working relationship. What's your style of directing when you're working with someone like Kurt, who's so hands-on in the movie? Is it kind of let him go and then talk about it, or how did that work? We didn't do a lot of rehearsals or readings, you know, and Kurt basically nails his performance in two or three takes. So he knows who he's playing and we've discussed it so much beforehand. The first film we worked maybe a year and a half on or a year and a few months. This film we worked a solid two years, maybe more. 
So we were really keyed in when we got there. So there's never any situations where he's going on like Robin Williams for 23 takes. He knows who this character is and he just gets it. The language of Elvish. You brought on a language specialist to create that or what was the process there? We wanted it again to be authentic. You know, we take this very seriously. So in the first film, we brought on a man whose name I don't remember, but he created Dothraki in all the different languages in Game of Thrones, the entire series. So we knew we had someone with a strong sense of language. There were certain times on the set where we needed Elvish and it wasn't written. We just realized, oh, we should do this in Elvish. So we would immediately get in touch with him, text him, and he would text back the Elvish language for that moment. What was it like having Darby Camp, who's young but very talented, learning a new language? Was that hard for her? Well, when you're talking about someone like Darby Camp, another kid who I think delivers an incredible performance in the film, Sonny Suljak, Darby meets him at the airport. It was like directing Kurt and Goldie. They're so professional, yet unspoiled. Those performances are so emotional and authentic without being kind of over the top. And Darby is just someone who is shockingly good. It's not where I'm off camera beating her lines. I'm essentially directing a little bit. I mean, just nuances. There's a scene early in the film where she walks out onto the beach and makes a wish. And that scene is done in one shot. That doesn't happen with all child actors. You know, we, it's one extended shot. And she pulled it off in three takes. The going back in time when you're referencing the airport, there were just such great little details like the airplanes were Pan Am. What was it like creating a time travel section of the movie? Yeah, well, we had Pan Am and TWA, both airlines that don't exist anymore. So that was key. In the first movie, Darby's father was played by Oliver Hudson. In this movie, she meets her father at the airport in 1990. And basically, we wanted him to be the same age as her. So when we did the math, we decided to stage the scene in 1990. But as I was shooting it, I'm looking around at all of the actors dressed in 1990s clothes. I had a flashback to Home Alone. I mean, this is how everyone looked when we were shooting Home Alone, but it was contemporary. This disgruntled passenger, this woman is screaming basically at Darlene Love. And it felt like the scene I shot with Catherine O'Hara getting upset with, I think, a rental car guy. I thought, okay, I'm starting to steal from myself here at this point. Do you steal from yourself? At this point, it's subconscious. I'm not aware of it, you know, until I'm shooting it. There's a lot of stuff in Christmas Chronicles, too, that the elves, for instance, turn into gremlin-like creatures. It's just weird. Way back on Home Alone 2, Steve Van Zandt, my frequent collaborator, and Darlene Love, Steve wrote a song for her called All Alone on Christmas, which he played with the E Street Band. And here I am, all these years later, actually getting to do a scene with Darlene Love and Kurt Russell, a great big musical number, which I'd prefer to do musical numbers for the rest of my life if I could. But that was such a great moment for me to be able to actually work with someone like Darlene, who is arguably, I think, the greatest singer in the world today. What is it about musical numbers that you love doing? I don't know. I'm I mean, I was very much into rock and roll as much as I was into filmmaking. So I've just been listening to music since I was a kid. And I just am obsessed with musicals and musical numbers. One of my favorite films is A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. And it just is a film I watch four or five times a year because it brings me such joy. It's why I did Rent, you know, Rent really affected me. And I wanted the audience to feel as if they could experience the original cast the way I did. Some people say, oh, they were a little too old for the roles. I don't care. If you see Rent the movie, you get to see most of the original Broadway cast. I'm dying to do another musical and I watch any new musical. I think I saw Hamilton maybe 21 times in various cities. And my wife was even more obsessed with that. 
A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of working. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life, and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time. When someone has an issue with one of your films, does it affect you or are you able to kind of tune it out and you are happy with the projects that you make no matter what? No, I listen to it because I always valued film criticism, always. I devoured film criticism. Like when I was a junior in high school and I knew I wanted to get into this business, I would start reading books by Pauline Kael and I was obsessed with great film criticism. And that extended, you know, I did a lot of cinema studies and film history at NYU. So my obsession with film is an obsession with good films. So if a critic doesn't particularly like a film, I'll take it to heart. But critics aren't always right. And by that, I mean, Home Alone was not particularly well-reviewed film that came out, but it was a popular film. It was a populist film. So we were validated back then, but I had no idea of its longevity. And now to see people refer to it, I don't refer to it, but the press refer to it as a Christmas classic is an interesting thing. I, I think it's, it's more about longevity and where these pictures stand and where they'll stand the test of time. I, I mean, the real simple solution is the films that were the most popular at the time they were released seem to have stood the test of time more than some of the others. Some of it I take seriously, some of it I don't. I used to dwell on it in terms of, I would dwell on the bad reviews and just ignore the good ones. I had this conversation with Kurt yesterday, not about criticism, but about the film being successful. You know, if your film is successful and you get the news, oh, this movie's a huge success, you're happy for maybe five minutes. And then you're off, you know, thinking about what you're gonna have for dinner, the COVID virus, Trump, whatever it is that's driving you crazy. You're thinking about all that other stuff that's much more important. But if a film bombs and no one likes it, you think about that for months. It's an interesting thing. I, I probably, once this is all over, need to see a therapist. Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting because it wasn't until I was, you know, doing research to talk to you that I found out that Mrs. Doubtfire had mixed reviews, which blows my mind because that's such a staple in my life because right. I, I love that film. What was it like creating something that I think it's a perfect movie and then having it be a mixed review film when it came out? At the time, again, we were sort of, taken aback by that a little bit because we had screened the film. You know, unfortunately, we couldn't screen Christmas Chronicles. So the tool for making a film that works really well for a movie audience doesn't really matter that much for television. But you know what's working and what's not working. So you can fashion your film around that. But with Mrs. Doubtfire, the audience was literally falling out of their seats. And so we knew we had a film that worked tremendously well. You know, it's an interesting thing, but sometimes I think critics don't take, and maybe I don't think I was taught this in film school because I'm about the audience first and foremost. But I remember this with Mrs. Doubtfire. We had critic screenings and there would be 10, 15 critics. And then it was filled with people. And I saw the reaction was great, but there certain film critics aren't really moved by an audience reaction. 
I don't know why, because I find that to be the barometer of success. It's not making the film for myself. I'm making the film for everyone out there. What was it like working with Robin Williams? Two things. It was amazing to be an observer, to see how his mind worked, because he was touched by some sort of spiritual genius. He would do two or three scripted takes, and we would talk about it. He said, okay, he always called me boss. Okay, boss, we're going to do three scripted takes, and then let's play. Now, by let's play, he means let's do anywhere from 18 to 23, 24 takes. <laughs> and you start with the PG-13 version of the movie. Then we get into the R-rated version. Then we get into the NC-17 version. <laughs> and some people have said, well, what's your style? I said, my style of filmmaking is sometimes documentary style based on who I'm working with. And with Robin Williams, again, we had to bring out the three, sometimes four cameras. Because I remember specifically in the restaurant scene at the end of the movie, I had a camera on Robin, and then I had a camera on Pierce and Sally and the kids, all at the same time. And my AD was like, do you really need four cameras? I said, yeah, because what's going to happen is Robin will say something, and he forgot it. In other words, he's touched by this genius. When I yell cut, he'd walk over to the script supervisor, who was furiously writing everything down. He said, he said what did I say here? What did I do? And he never repeated himself. So you'd only get those reactions from people like Sally Field or Pierce Brosnan if you had a camera on him because he would never do it again, you know? And there are times in the movie where I see Robin and I think maybe I'm the only one who sees it because I knew him so well, where he'll say something that surprises himself and then he'll start to laugh. He made himself laugh. And I remember when his teeth fall into the water and he's using something to get, get maybe a fork or something. And you can see in that moment, if you look closely, He's laughing at himself. <laughs> so he was a joy to work with. Even in a movie that is as sort of mixed as nine months, he did a cameo in the movie when Hugh Grant and Julianne Moore go to visit him in his office. And his cameo is one of the funniest things he's ever at. And he ad-libbed. And Hugh Grant and Julianne, this is the first day of working with Robin. They were exhausted. I didn't get to see Nine Months. So what was the scene? Nine Months is a weird movie because it's not available anywhere. I don't know what happened to that movie. But the scene, I think, is on YouTube. And it's the scene where the two of them go into Robin's office and basically find out that he was trained as a veterinarian in Russia, but he's now their obstetrician. So, and Robin just ran with that entire concept. So you mentioned Maiden Voyage, which is your company with Eleanor, your daughter. Yeah. And that primarily focuses on first-time directors. Eleanor and I had an idea. She was working for a lot of independent films in New York. And we were talking on the phone one day and I said, you know, I was involved with NYU helping a lot of first-time filmmakers find finishing funds for their movies. And I said to Eleanor, I'm working with NYU students and it's really rewarding. But I said, I'm only involved with them for a day or two. I said, I'd like to actually get involved with these young filmmakers and help them find funds to finish their film or to make their film. And it was called Main Voyage because it was usually first-time directors, but it's developed into much more than that. But I like to work with filmmakers whose films I wouldn't make or I don't have the desire to make, but I love. So I love to support their vision. And the key is to constantly do that and maintain a relationship with these directors so you can work with them again and again. For instance, I've had the opportunity to work with some great directors like Robert Eggers, who we did The Lighthouse with and The Witch. And Eggers and I are planning to do another movie together. Again, I love people with a tremendous amount of passion for filmmaking, no matter what kind of filmmaking. So that's really been the most rewarding thing I've done over the last five or six years, you know, and those filmmakers give me energy and fuel me for wanting to continue to make films. 
Is there something you can pinpoint that you see in them that makes you want to support them? Because we can all be very passionate about films. That doesn't necessarily make us a good filmmaker. So is there something that you see in them specifically, the people you support? Well, for instance, I'll go back to Rob. On the Lighthouse set, we were having a budget meeting with somebody who was going to finance the Lighthouse, right? And they were going to give him $23 million to make the movie. But they pulled me aside because they knew I had a close relationship with him. And they said, well, the only thing we want you to please beg Rob to do is shoot the film digitally in color. And then for certain areas, we'll show it in black and white, but then it can be color for areas where people don't want to see a black and white movie, which is such a god awful thought for me. But I went back to Rob and I said, this is what they want you to do. He said, there's no way I'm doing it. He goes, we're shooting this on 35 millimeter film with cameras from 1952, with lenses from everywhere from the 20s to the 40s. So it has that look. So I went back and I talked to the financiers and I said, this is what he wants to do. And they said, okay, well, he's now going to have to make a movie for $18 million or something. So in that second, because of his commitment to his craft, he lost $6 million or seven or whatever it was, but he made the movie he wanted to make and he made a great movie. That's the kind of passion I'm talking about. You just don't back down. And a lot of these movies are very personal movies. So I love that about these filmmakers. And they've struggled for years to try to get this one movie made. It was like that with Robin the Witch, and we see it time and time again, and with Sean Hader with Tallulah, and the recent film Karen Maine did Yes, God, Yes. These people really were obsessed with making this movie, and that's why I think they turn out so well. If you look back at your whole career, can you pinpoint your favorite day on set? I've got a lot of favorite days on set, unfortunately. You know, I, I mean, fortunately. There's not really one favorite, and the crew feels the same way as when we are shooting any sort of musical number, whether it's Christmas Chronicles 1 or 2, or whether it's Rent, or whether it was way back in the blues bar scene and Adventures in Babysitting. Those are the moments that are the most joyful for me. Every film is different, and every film has its days that are just horrible, but there are those days, like the restaurant scene in Mrs. Doubtfire, where it's just pure joy to direct. Has there been ever a time that you were ready to quit? I don't really want to mention the film by name, but there was a situation where I got involved with producers who had a different style of filmmaking than I did. I think it hurt the film and we were always butting heads. I didn't know that getting into the picture. So when I finished that particular film, I was devastated. I thought this has been a soul crushing experience for me. But then, you know, you just get back on your feet and you get ready for next Sunday's game. So I always wrap up these conversations on my favorite question to ask, which is, what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? You know, my mother was a great storyteller. You could listen to her for hours telling a lot of self-deprecating stories, which I love. She's just an amazing storyteller. So wanting to tell stories, particularly starting as a writer, I just love it. It's an interesting thing with Netflix. No one misses the cinematic experience of watching a film in a theater with hundreds of people. There is nothing better in the world than that. And that's the best part of storytelling, being able to see your work and being able to see an audience respond to it. We don't have that now. And that's really a sad situation. But with something like Netflix, when Christmas Chronicles 2 came out, I put on a couple of TVs I have in the house and put Christmas Chronicles on every TV, put Christmas Chronicles on my computer, on my iPad. And then I said to my wife, I said, this is so cool. We're not only on in our house everywhere, but it's on everywhere in America. No, it's on everywhere in the world. So knowing at that one time that everyone in the world can watch your storytelling, watch your film, that's a new feeling that I had not experienced. Chris Columbus, thank you so much for joining me today. 
That was so fun. It was so much fun. I can't thank you enough. And, you know, everyone should go watch Christmas Chronicles 2 a bunch of times. What else are we going to do right now? (laughs) And it will cheer you up. And it will cheer you up. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Chris Columbus, edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. We want to thank you so much for sticking with us through this entire season of Stuck at Home. We are excited to be bringing you a bigger, brighter show in the new year. As always, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>